And the idea behind it is what makes it so offensive. The idea, but there's many things that make it offensive, but this particular is that the thought, the concept was, this was a way to drive the black out of these children. It was racist. It was bigoted. And of course, the story, the movie, is about a woman that comes to Australia and is viewing this and the idea is how wrong that taking of children and, and there's all kinds of sort of under themes that go on. It's an interesting movie to watch in that way. But the other reason why I watched it, and I was looking for a clip with this quote and couldn't find it. But at one point, they're talking about the racial division that exists. They're talking about the way things are done. And this phrase is used. Well, that's just the way it is. And to that phrase is given the response that I think is profound. And the response was this. Just because it is doesn't mean it should be. We have a habit of accepting what is the status quo that surrounds us. The problem with culture is that it's like a fish in water. The fish is unaware of the water. The fish is unaware of the uniqueness of their environment. Much as we walk around in the air and we don't think about it. In every culture there are struggles. In every culture, there are things that simply are the way it is. But based on Scripture, based on the principles of God's Word, we need to look at them, and we need to address them, and we need to ask the question, just because it is, is that how it should be? I had a dear friend when I was pastoring in Louisiana that was raised in the Carolinas in the segregated South. We both had a dear friend who was African-American and we were we were Caucasian and we would be interacting and talking. And I remember in one of those conversations the question went to the segregated church in which he was raised. In that church, a black person, it wasn't just that they were unwelcomed, but there would have been just short of physical violence that would have taken place to keep a black person out of that white congregation. And as we were discussing it and talking about the people of that church and how in many other ways they seemed to be godly, they, they, they were committed to God's word, they were committed to being kind to one another, they were committed to all kinds of things that we value in terms of our Christian walk. But when it came to the area of unity, the oneness of the body of Christ, 
the breaking down of the barriers that our world erects, they failed miserably. And I remember saying to him, well, what did you do? And here was his response. Now, he was younger. He was a teenager at the time. But he said, you know what? I didn't think there was anything I could do because it was just the way it was. That bothers me. It bothers me on two levels. One, it bothers me in terms of looking at my own life, looking at my culture, looking at this time where, yes, racial relationships are a little bit better, much better. There's still problems, and we'll look at that in a few moments. But I wonder, what is there in my culture, in my life, in my society, in my time, that I simply look at and say, well, that's just the way it is. I wonder if it's something to do with the things that maybe I watch on television or the things that are done in the video games or the things that I listen to on the radio and the sense of violence and the sense of immorality and the sense of those things that just bombard me on a moment-by-moment basis. And I wonder if I just simply accept that. Because that's the way it is. I wonder if it has to do with the materialistic attitude that, that again, I just swim in. And I make the assumption that I need the bigger, the better, the faster, the, 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 you know, the, the more um, shiny. And the consumeristic attitudes that invade not just my purchases, but invade my attitude towards church and my attitude towards relationships and my attitude towards community and all of those things. What is there that in my life just is that shouldn't be? But when we come to the passage that we're going to look at this morning, The is that shouldn't be is the sense of ethnocentricity or or racism or racialization or is which is still a struggle within our culture. And that's the context in which we've been looking at this. We've been looking at coming to understand a biblical view, a biblical theology of race. Now, it's been six weeks. We went through Advent and then a few weeks afterwards. And so it's been a little while since we've been in this theme. So I want to just go back and, and do a very, very quick review. And that is to look at the first several weeks that we were involved in this topic. We came to a theology. We came to a statement. We came to a a declaration that I think summarizes well what the, church, what the Bible teaches about race. And this is a theology of racial and ethnic harmony, and it's a little long. There's a little slip out in the back on the table, uh, at the what's happening table that has this on it, if you want to read through it and think through it. And I'm open to words. I'm constantly 
tweaking it and changing it a little bit to, to try to make it a little bit more accurate. But I think this is what God's word teaches. This is the foundation. This is the theology. That God's eternal design for humanity, that is to be one race made in his image, expressing itself in creative diversity, was corrupted by man's rebellion. That's the Tower of Babel. That's the the events that happened right after the flood. That's man's unwillingness to move into all the world. And so God chose to just confuse and confound and to judge human race because they were using that unity to oppose God's purposes. So the blessing of diversity became the curse of divisiveness and conflict. That's Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. And as you come to this, at the end of Genesis chapter 11, God says, I have a way to deal with this. And in response, God planned to reverse this chaos through his covenant people. That's what Genesis 12 is all about. I call Abraham, who will become a nation. And there is a purpose behind that nation. The purpose behind that nation is that I will bless them so that they may be a blessing to others. And that is a biblical principle. That is a biblical principle of God's covenant. That is a biblical principle of God's blessing. Why does God bless us? Because we're so good? Because we're so, you know, God can't do without us that he just has to? No. God blesses us for his purpose. And God blesses us that we might take his blessing and pour it into the lives of others. And so God planned to reverse this chaos through his covenant people His plan began with Abraham and was fully inaugurated in the establishment of the new covenant procured through Christ's death and enjoyed by all as true followers of Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You cannot read the New Testament without hearing over and over and over and over again that we are one body in Christ. We are united in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither man nor woman. There is not Sith what was considered barbarian and Roman. The divisions of the world are done away with. We don't judge a person based on anything that is external. We don't judge them on their education. We don't judge their value based on their wealth. We don't judge value based on their political power. We don't judge a person based on their color. We don't judge a person based on their ethnicity. They are valued in Christ if they are a believer, and they are valued as image bearers if they are human. That was established 
when Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father and sent his Holy Spirit. And if that other person knows Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, they are my brother, they are my sister, we are united in Christ, and they bring something to the body, and they bring something to the family. I must learn to value and accept and intermingle with. God commissions his people to be the model and means of racial and ethnic harmony in the world. The world ought to look at us as the body of Christ and say, oh, that's how you That's how God would have us live. The universal and local church are to pursue and intermingle that which is right, true, and here's the standard. Here's the judgment. Biblical. Does this way of living, does this way of thinking, Does this way of expression, does this way of all the things that make up our ethnic uniqueness, to take those things that conform to God's purposes. And yes, there are differences. There are differences in the way we do cultural things, the, the way we sing, the way we express ourselves, the clothes that we wear, the art that we enjoy, all of those kinds of things. And God's focus, God's purpose, is that we find a way to intermingle them, not blend them and make one grayness. But to allow that uniqueness, to allow that enjoyment, to find ways for the body of Christ to work together, to find ways that those that like hymns can worship with those that like choruses, can worship with those like, who like Gregorian chants, will worship with those who like, you know, cantatas, that can worship with those who like country music. I am, you know this, I'm not a country music fan. But if I was pastoring a church in southern Texas, I'd be yeehawing with everyone else. We need to find a way to take our preferences, to take our uniquenesses and blend them together in a way that is understanding and caring, a way that is listening to one another. The black church has come out of things that we simply, as a white church, do not understand. For decades, to live under the condemnation that says that you are less than me because of your color. To say you cannot associate with me because of your color. To live under those things. To have known what it means to be persecuted and to be lynched and to have family members that understand that creates an understanding of the gospel, an understanding of forgiveness that I simply don't have. Why was it when Mother Emmanuel experienced the murder of the people within their congregation, why was it that their first response was to say, we forgive? 
because of an understanding of the gospel in that area that's deeper than mine. Somehow we need to find a way to intermingle that. Why? Because the universal and local church are to pursue the intermingling, which is right, true, and biblical within various cultures as a representation of the eternal diversity of the kingdom of God. Do you know there are nations, there are ethnicities in eternity? Read Revelation. Somehow we have this attitude that heaven is this place where we go to where we're all going to wear the same white robes. We're all going to wear, play the same golden harps. We're all going to have the same hairstyle. No! There's a word for that. Boring. I know what it's like to be bored in a church service for an hour. Imagine being bored in a heavenly eternity forever. God loves diversity. It says of eternity that the nations, the peoples, will bring before God the the glory of their peopleness. The nations, it's the word ethnos. And if that's God's picture, then we need to take that picture And look at what is. Now when you begin to look at that, what you begin to understand is that when accepted norms violate God's purpose, God's design, God's way of wanting and doing things, that it's necessary to shake things up. We can't just accept it and just go on. We need to find ways to make a difference. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 4. Because in Luke chapter 4, Jesus does this. And it's very much in an ethnic context, in a racial context, if you use that word in a very broad sense. Jesus is dealing with the bigotry of the culture in which he is living. Now, there it wasn't black and white. Rather, there it was part of my people and everyone else. Among the Jewish people, it was, we are Jewish, we are God's people, and everyone else is less. If you were Roman, you'd say it this way, I am Roman, and all the rest of you are barbarians. That's not a nice term. Or if I were Greek, I would say, I'm Greek. And the rest of you, you're just ignorant. Now, they didn't care so much about things that existed in our culture 50, 60 years ago. They they didn't worry so much about, you know, face color and skin color and things like that. But it was, you were either in or out. You were either part of my group, the better group, or you were the lesser Lesser valued as a person. Lesser valued as a human. Lesser as a being. Jesus walks right into the middle of that. And he does not, satis- he does not settle for the status quo. He shakes things up. 
you begin to see it in Luke chapter 4. And what Jesus confronts the people here about, and we'll, we'll give the context in a moment, is this, God's blessing should produce humility and compassion. Has God blessed you? Everyone in this room ought to be going like this. I know we have struggles. But we are blessed as a nation, as a culture, beyond the comprehension of most people in the world. And what that ought to move us, because we're blessed financially or we're blessed you know, culturally or we're blessed educationally, should lead to a humility that says, God, thank you. I don't deserve this. Now, I may have worked hard, sure. God values that. God values faithfulness. But the opportunity does not make you a more valuable person. You are made in the image of God. That is where our value rests. And our purpose is to fulfill those who are believers in Christ, living that out as we seek to take what God has done and bless others. It ought to produce humility and compassion. But too often the opposite takes place. Instead of taking God's blessing and using it to bless others and to motivate our attitudes of humility and compassion, it gets corrupted and becomes a pride. I'm better than they are. An arrogance, my way or the highway. And a sense of entitlement, I deserved this. I've had the opportunity to travel in a number of different countries and cultures. And one of the things about us Americans is other cultures sometimes have a real struggle with us. I remember being in Russia. Russia is an amazing country. A number of different reasons. One, I saw more different colored hair in Russia with women than I've ever seen in my life. And I mean, just everybody, not, you know, not just the younger generation. I remember this older woman had a, a, a fur collar that was pink, and her hair matched it. The education level of people in Russia is amazing. I remember just being at a regular church and people coming up and talking about graduating from this university and having done this and having done that. But yet as a culture, they seem to be slow. And as they would talk about us Americans, I remember sitting down and sitting down with the pastor's wife, he'd talk about the fact, the loudness of Americans, the, the forcefulness of Americans, the, the assumption that our way is always the best way. And he, and he remember him saying to me, the thing about you Americans is, you don't know how to listen. You always want to tell. And I remember thinking, I wonder if that has to do with just all the benefits. I was sitting in this, this pastor and his wife's apartment. They had two kids. They lived in an apartment that had two bedrooms, a kitchen and a small room that was a dining room. I was staying with another couple that had three rooms. 
They had a living room that was converted into a bedroom, another living room that their daughter had lived in now was gone, and a kitchen that was it, and bathrooms. And I thought, I wonder if it's because we have such bounty, such, such prosperity, that we fail to listen to the lessons and the truths and the understanding of people that have a very different experience from us. And our blessing, instead of leading to humility and compassion, leads to pride and arrogance. That's what's happening in Luke chapter 4. You see, in Luke, there is a theme that goes all the way through, and that is this. God blesses his covenant people in order for them to be a blessing to all peoples. It begins in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 2, where God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Not because you're particularly wonderful, not because you're particularly great, not because you're particularly, you know, spiritual. I chose to bless you, but there is a reason. I'm going to choose to bless you so that through you, all the peoples, all the nations, all the, in the Septuagint's ethnos, can be blessed. And that theme of the Abrahamic covenant goes all the way through the books of Luke and Acts. You understand they're sort of one book. They're one story. Part one, part two. Jesus' ministry while he was physically here on earth. Jesus' ministry as he works through the body of Christ. And so in the very beginning, Luke chapter 1, verse 55, and you see there Mary praying about the wonder and praising God about the wonder of what's taking place. She declares there about Abraham and Abraham's covenant and how through Abraham the world will be blessed. In Luke chapter 1, verses 72 to 73, when, when Zechariah is giving his blessing, that same theme appears. And you have it at the beginning of Luke, and then you have it at the end of Luke. The end of Luke, the very last couple of verses of the book of Luke, are this. Jesus telling his disciples to go into the rest of the world. Acts chapter 1 begins there, picks it up. And says, you will be my witnesses where? Judea, I mean, Jerusalem, okay. Judea, all right. Ooh, Samaria, yeah. And to the barbarians, the uttermost part of the earth. And then Luke ends the book of Acts by declaring that it was Paul's ministry to move out into the entire world. That's the theme of Luke and Acts. Oh, and by the way, in Paul's epistles. And so when you come here in Luke chapter 4, he is dealing with a people who have been called to be blessed by God in order that they might bless the world, all peoples. Jesus comes to the synagogue in Nazareth. And they have a service much like ours that involved the reading of Scripture and the, 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 the re, uh, repeating of Psalms and those kinds of things. And then someone would read from the Old Testament 
Pentateuch, and they would read from the prophets, and then someone would stand up and give the message. This time it's Jesus. And Jesus stands up in that synagogue, and he opens up the scroll. Now remember, there's not chapters and verses. He unrolls the scroll, and he finds the place he wants to be. That's cool. And he begins to read from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, those physically and spiritually in need. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for those that are bound by all of the things, both physical and spiritual, that bind humanity. He has sent me to preach freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight to the blind, to release the oppressed. And then he says this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's acceptance. Remember that word, acceptance. There are a number of different translations, but that's the original word. Now, at first, when they hear this, the people say, oh. He rolls up his scroll and he says, basically, I am the fulfillment of this. And in verse 22, it says, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. They were saying, wow, what a preacher. And then someone said, wait a minute. That's the carpenter. That's Joseph's son. Who does he think he is? Suddenly, there's a bit of a disruption. And we'll get to the verses, but Jesus centers in right to it, and he says, you know what? You people think you are so spiritual because you are blessed by God that you've failed to hear the real message. You see, the problem was Jesus came to them, and he was saying, you are blind. You are captive. You are the ones that need healing. You are the poor that need the good news. And they heard it as they need it. We're fine. He's coming to be our Messiah. He'll straighten them out and everything will be great. And so they had corrupted God's blessing into a source of bigoted spiritual and and, and cultural arrogance. How do I know that? One, it leads to a blindness concerning their own shortcomings and needs. They never hear the message that they are the ones who are blind, that they are the ones that are poor, that they are the ones that are held captive, that they are the ones that are imprisoned, that they are the ones that need the good news. Beloved, any time we begin to think in terms of them and us, and fail to understand that we are just as much in need of God's work in our lives. We've taken God's blessing and used it to turn to arrogance. 
it leads to an inability to hear God's invitation. It's so interesting because Jesus says there that this is the year of the Lord's favor in verse 19. This is the year of the Lord's acceptance. That's the word there. And Luke uses a unique translation of the Aramaic or Hebrew word there. And then he uses exactly the same word a little bit later down when you run down to verse 24 when he says there that... um, I tell you the truth, he continues, no prophet is accepted in his own home. God has come and said, I seek to accept you. But in their arrogance, in their self-centeredness, they reject the very invitation of God. And then, of course, most of all, they reject Christ himself. Verse 26, after hearing what we're going to see in just a moment, all the people in the synagogue were furious. And when they heard this, when they heard that you are the ones in spiritual need, they grabbed Jesus, took him to the precipice of the hill, and were ready to throw him off to kill him. What was the message that turned them from a people saying, whoa, that was a great message. To saying, let's kill him. It was a, ra- it was a message about bigotry. It was a message about ethnic arrogance that said, The problem is you fail to see your own need and have taken God's blessing and turned it into arrogance and pride rather than humility and compassion. You see, when God's blessing comes to the source of bigoted pride and arrogance and whatever that blessing is. For the Jewish people in the first century, it was the blessing of spiritual outpouring. I think in our culture, it's the blessing of wealth and comfort and and power. In other cultures, it's other things. But when God's blessing becomes the source of bigoted pride and arrogance, we need to stir things up. And so that's exactly what Jesus does. Now, as you develop it, we need to understand that kingdom faith fulfills God's design by destroying racism and ethnic-centric pride. The kingdom of God says, I want to hear what you have to offer. I want to learn from you. I want to learn the unique ways that you see things because of God's work in your life and in your culture and in your experience and in your life. Faith tears down that pride. How do I know that? Well, because Matthew in his gospel declares it. He says there's this centurion, one of those. He's a Roman. He's a Goyim. He's a Gentile. He's one of those that, yes, he helped build um, um, synagogues, but he's on the outside. And he comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, Jesus, 
please heal my servant. Not only is he a goyim, not only is he a Gentile, he's a Roman soldier, a sign of oppression. And Jesus says, take me to your house. And the centurion says, you don't even need to come to my house. I understand authority. I understand what it means to be under the authority of another. You have the authority to simply speak, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus responds with this statement. I tell you the truth. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. The issue is not whether or not you're born under the the nation of Israel, whether you're born in this ethnic group or this racial group. The issue to Jesus is faith. And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take up their place at the feast with Abraham. God blesses so that others will be blessed and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says, I warn you. The issue is faith, not ethnicity. Now Luke does the same thing. But Luke builds it, and we're going to look over the next several weeks, this building of that. Luke builds on this theme, this theme that faith is the issue, not race, not ethnicity, none of those kinds of things, not wealth, not power. The issue is faith that pleases God. And so here in the Nazareth synagogue, he gets up and he says, the Messiah is here. But let me warn you. The good Samaritan, we read that story and we go, oh, isn't that nice? first century Jewish person, when they heard that story, would have done this. They'd have gagged at it. Centurion, Pentecost, when suddenly people from all over the world, all of the nations that are gathered together, hear the gospel, the good news, the unity of what took place in Christ. The Ethiopian eunuch, Cornelius, the story of Niger, the Gentile churches, all of that is Luke's way in Luke and Acts to say God is working in ways beyond our bigotry, beyond our ethnicity, beyond our ethnocentricity, beyond our racism, beyond all of it. God's body is a diverse unity that exists in Christ. And here you go. Why did they pick up Jesus and want to throw him off a cliff? Because Jesus uses a culturally reprehensible story demonstrating our need to decompose bigoted cultural norms. To seek to undo them. It doesn't strike us. We read there in Luke chapter 4 and verse 24, I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Many were suffering. Many were hungry. Many were thirsty. 
Many were going through a difficult time in Israel, in God's people. Yet Elijah was sent, was not sent. No one of them was he sent to. But a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. What did Jesus just say? He said, because of the failure of God's people to use their blessing to bless others, to be obedient and faithful to God, God chose to go not to what was assumed, but he went to the other. It's like in my friend's church when he was growing up, if the preacher had got up and said, I am leaving this church to go preach at the black church. And the people were offended. He does it a second time. He goes on and he says to them, and there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet to not one of them. Again, Luke uses the same phrase. Jesus is, is saying the same thing again. Not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman Syrian of Syria or the Syrian. Again, Jesus says he left what was the assumption and went to that which would mess up the status quo. Beloved, there are lots of ways we need to look into our culture. And what Jesus is saying is simply this. We cannot simply accept the status quo as followers of Christ. We need to take God's word. And we need to understand that God's blessing in our lives is not simply there for us to be proud in who we are and what we have. But to take it and use it to bless others. We live not in a racist society, but we live in a racialized society. We live in an ethnocentric society. There are certain norms that I have set that have nothing to do with Scripture, but my preferences that are used to judge others. And in God's kingdom, that's unacceptable. Now, just quickly, really quickly, be aware that if you seek to shake up the status quo, people won't like it. When the racist or sexist or bigoted or whatever story is told by your friends, to say, you know what, I really don't want to be a part of this. To take the choices to move outside of that where we are comfortable and break the status quo, many will not like it. But the question that Jesus leaves us with in this passage is this. Just because it is, doesn't mean it should be. Where is God calling you to shake up the status quo? Not to judge others, 
to make a difference in your own life that says, I choose not to live by that which should not be. Father, thank you for the example of your son, for this message that we have. Father, may we be those people who shake up the status quo, who seek to move out and to find ways to to live according to your word and not according to the accepted practices of our society. Father, it begins with our relationship with you through your son, and we invite anyone who doesn't know your son as their savior to speak to someone here to know more what that means. And Father, for all of us, we ask your spirit to bring about your conviction in our lives to find those ways where we need to live, we need to choose to shake up that which is accepted, but in contradiction to your word. We pray it in the name of your son, Jesus.